Good morning and welcome. It is so good to be back with you all. So good to see your faces. Visitors, thank you for joining us. If you're joining us for the first time or first couple times, we're really happy that you're here. If you have any questions about anything related to 4th Avenue, we would love to get to know you all. And it's really great for me to be back. I miss being away from you all last Sunday. <clears throat> and last Sunday was amazing, even though JP threw me under the bus a little bit. Sheesh. But <clears throat> that guy uh, did a great job of covering a very hard topic. But it was very good for me to be home last weekend with my family. And I want to say thank you for everybody who's been lifting up my mom in prayers. I greatly appreciate it. And thank you also for uh, the cards that you sent her way. It's a great encouragement to her and therefore a great encouragement to me. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. And I just love you guys. I do. Turns out. <clears throat> we ha really do have some of the best people here. So this past weekend, you may not have noticed, but the Kansas City Chiefs are back-to-back -back champions, baby. Woo! Yeah. I'll take any of the response that you get from that. So uh, we are now the definitive dynasty of the NFL. All is right with the world. But I can safely say during the game, all didn't feel right in the world. I don't know what y'all are like whenever you're watching your favorite team or maybe a child performing or something, but I'm a pacer. So I had so much nervous energy built up in me, I was just pacing around my parents' house quite a bit. And basically the whole playoff run, there were times where I would just like walk in circles around the island in my kitchen because I was nervous about what was going on. And before games, I have to do some like deep breathing exercises. <laughs> I have to be like, okay, Kyle, you have to remember that this is just a game. You don't know anybody on that team. You have zero connections with the coaching staff, with the organization. You know no one. It's not going to make a lick of difference in your life. Nothing will change tomorrow if the Chiefs lose. So why are you getting so mad at the little things whenever a receiver drops a ball? Why are you yelling at the TV? It's not important. Right? I, I kind of have to do that basically every game. <laughs> and it doesn't work. <laughs> but uh, it just makes me realize <laughs> that we have a lot of loyalty and zeal for pretty petty things, even something as insignificant as a sports team. I mean, for Chiefs games, you would see grown men take their shirts off in negative degree weather and paint their bodies red and yell the whole time. It's like, what do you guys do in your day job? <laughs> like, what, what's going on? And even there's some like liturgy, there's some pseudo worship rituals that happen with Chiefs games. There's the tomahawk chop. There's the banging of the drum at the beginning of the game, the national anthem, the uh, planes flying over the stadium, right? There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And how much more can we say things like that with SEC football, right? All the rituals that go on, all the uh, different traditions that the teams have. And for many, it's just a game, but for many more, <laughs> it's more than just a game, right? And I, just so I'm not only picking on sports fans here, we have these zealous allegiances for many things. It could be bands or artists, from people like the Beatles to being a Swifty, right? A lot of deep allegiance there. It can be allegiance to only buy one specific car brand because you've had good experiences with them in the past. It could be 
allegiance to either Android or iPhone and being very passionate about either side of those, and that debate can get people riffing. It could be political party and the fierce loyalty that's there. We have a lot of loyalties that we care very deeply about, ranging from very small, insignificant things to more important things, from sports to politics, right? So what is it that makes us so passionate about these allegiances? I think some of it might come from this desire to belong, to be a part of a cultural identity, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Maybe some of it is just because we really value this thing or we really think it's that important to get worked up about. But the real question that we're diving into today is where should our zealous, loyal allegiance be? We've been going through a series on the book of Revelation. And if you're just joining us today for the first time, we're going to be talking about a dragon and two beasts. And for some of you, that might either be like, who are these people? What's going on? or it might make you be very intrigued. Either way, we're happy that you're here. But I wanna preface this morning that the book of Revelation, I talked about it in the first sermon in the series, if you wanna go back to it, it's a very symbolic book of the Bible. And as you hear some of this and you think it's weird because it sounds very foreign or unfamiliar, you have to know that to the original audience, this wouldn't have been foreign at all. They would have known exactly what this is talking about. And it's actually a very beautiful and powerful and deep challenge for the church to endure through deep trial and persecution. And Revelation is arguably the most political book in the Bible. Whenever I say that, I don't mean talking about modern day policy or politics, but Revelation is greatly talking about what should the church's posture be to the governing authority over them, which at that time was Rome. And we're really diving into a lot of that this morning. So we're gonna start in chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And some context before we get into chapter 13, we have to go back to what we talked about on New Year's Eve in chapter 12 with the dragon. In chapter 12, we're introduced to this dragon that seeks to destroy, seeks to kill Jesus the moment that he is born because, because he's threatened by Jesus. And we find out in chapter 12 that the dragon is actually a reference to the devil. But the blood of the lamb deals the final blow to the devil and he has lost, amen? And he is filled with anger because he knows that his time is short. And so he's taking his attention, he's taking his energy and directing it towards the people of God and the kingdom of God, trying to destroy it as much as he can. And this sets up the scene for a little bit of the dragon strategy which is unveiled in chapter 13. But we're gonna start with the last verse of 12 and then go into 13. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and 10 horns with 10 crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard and it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. 
and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And after he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belonged to this world worshiped the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. All right, that's a big section there. And we're gonna try to unpack a lot of it, but I can't unpack every single thing in the sermon. Um, There's some debate about who this beast coming out of this sea is. But I think Daniel chapter seven, which this is straight up stealing stuff from Daniel chapter seven, very clearly talks about what this beast is representing. In Daniel seven, he gets this vision of four great beasts that come out of the sea. One was like a lion, one was like a bear, and one was like a leopard. Uh, The other one was an unnamed scary beast um, that also had 10 horns. But these three are present in the beast in Revelation. So what happens in Revelation is these four beasts are formed into one singular monstrosity. One singular beast that comes out of the sea. And the sea in Jewish literature is a symbol for chaos and evil And in Daniel 7, verse 17, it says this, the four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. So this is a reference to earthly kingdoms. And there's some debate in Daniel about who these kingdoms could be. It could be Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, then Rome. I don't know. But with Daniel in mind, the beast from the sea is this amalgamation, this combination that is uh, representing the dominant kingdoms of the world. And in the time of the first century Christians, that dominant kingdom was Rome. But this beast has taken many forms throughout history as empires have risen and fallen. So it says, the beast has seven heads with names of blasphemy written on each head, 10 horns and 10 crowns on each of the horns. In Daniel, the 10 horns represent different kings of these different empires. And I think that's probably the case for what the heads and the horns are representing here in Revelation. It's a, it's a nod to the Roman emperors of the day. The blasphemous names written on the heads could be, and if you didn't know this, um, emperors made divine claims that they were basically God. And some of the titles that were given to Roman emperors are some of the same titles you see in Revelation given to Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Like these are all titles that were used for emperors. And uh, the crowns on each of the horns symbolize their power and authority as rulers. But the biggest evidence of this to me is verse three that says one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery but the fatal wound was healed. So around this time, if you didn't know, there is a myth of the Emperor Nero, that he died and was raised to life and thus kind of ruled like a god. And he led some to worship him. And it's thought by historians that Nero died in AD 68, but there were rumors after that point that started to get spread that he was actually alive. Documents were signed with his name. People claimed to be him in the years that followed. And this would have been well known for John's audience. So the head of the beast that was wounded and then revived is likely a reference to Nero. 
And because of this quote-unquote miracle, Revelation 13 says that the world marveled and gave allegiance to the beast. And they worshiped the beast and the dragon, and also the dragon for giving the beast that much power. And this beast had the authority to rule the tribes, tongues, and nations, which all of that might startle you. (laughs) But we see elsewhere in scripture the power and the role of Satan behind kingdoms all over the place. Scripture calls the devil the god of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. Whenever he tempts Jesus, he tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms of the earth, which that was a real temptation, which that's sobering, church, right? And the beast, empowered by the devil, much like the devil, wages war against the people of God. The people who belong to this world and are of this world, worship the beast, and subsequently, because they worship the beast, they worship the dragon. And their names are not written in the book of life. But there's more to this story, and before we dig in a little bit more, there's another figure that joins Team Dragon that we have to talk about. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even made fire flash down to the earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast, who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that everyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So we see another beast here. But this one comes from the earth, and he looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. This is a very poetic way to talk about false prophecy. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Looks like a lamb, he looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus maybe, but really is speaking with the voice of a dragon. He wanted all people to bow down to the first beast, to bow down to the empire, to bow down to the state. He is portrayed with power, and that makes his appearance here even more convincing. And any who refused to worship the beast and the statue of the beast, which symbolizes the idolatry of worshiping the empire, was to die. And that was a very real threat for the church here in Revelation. They were actually being killed by the empire because they were not turning to Rome and the gods of Rome and worshiping them. The beast is representative of the governing forces that require the worship and compliance of the empire. They are pushing propaganda to try to ensure worship of the beast of the sea. And the beast from the earth then rounds out the unholy trinity of Revelation. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. 
And if you haven't already noticed, so much of what is happening in chapter 13 is a mocking. It is a mocking of heaven. It is making fun of the real trinity. As there is father, son, and spirit, there is dragon and the two beasts. They have authority and power. There is worship of the dragon and the two beasts. There is a false gospel and a false resurrection that makes people worship. And then we get to the actual mark of the beast. And you know, I think I really cracked the code here. So Gary got a salad from Chick-fil-A. And the number is 666. Are you kidding me? The place that we thought had anointed nuggets is really a vessel for our demise? No, say it ain't so. No, that's obviously not what the market piece is. <laughs> and Chick-fil-A is still great. Um, but the mark of the beast is a cheap imitation of heaven. Get ready for this one. The number six is one less than the number seven. You with me? Okay, so seven is the number for completion. The number for perfection, if you will, in the Jewish thought. And the number of perfection was 777. So 666 is like perfect incompleteness. And the marking of the forehead and the hand is a nod to the Shema in Deuteronomy, which they were supposed to tie around their foreheads and their hands uh, the words of the Shema, which is, um, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, right? So being written around your forehead, that's getting into your ideology, the way that you think in your mind. And your hands are kind of a symbol for the lived out, the practical uh, aspect. Of the same way that there's worship for the Jews to do that with their scriptures, the mark of the beast is kind of their form of worship of the unholy trinity. And then it says the number is that of a man. Could you put that slide back up? <clears throat> and so the number here is 666. And just to be clear, that's not 666. It is 666. That is the number. So how can a number be a man? Back during the time of Revelation, there was, and still is today, a Jewish practice of gematria, which this practice takes Hebrew letters and gives them corresponding numbers. So if you would add up all the letters of a name, for instance, it would, it would spit out a number. So there were writings of the day that said something really romantic, like the person that I am in love with is the one whose name is 545. And everyone like looks at their name. Does it work? Does it work? No. Um, but if you were to take the Greek spelling of Nero Caesar and transliterate those Greek letters into Hebrew letters, the total number of all of those letters together is 666. And the reason that some copies, and in your Bibles, you might see this in the footnotes, some copies of your Bible have the number 616 is because they're taking a Latin transliteration of the spelling of Nero Caesar, which would have also been known at the day. And uh, the letter that you're missing from the Greek is worth 50, so 666 minus 50 equals 616. That's where you get those two numbers. That's a lot I just threw at you. <laughs> And there's so much more depth that I could dive into here in this chapter today, but I'm gonna stop with all the like detailed digging. But the message of chapter 13 here 
is such a vital one. We are at war, church. The devil is actively seeking to destroy the kingdom of God and the people of God. He is the ruler of this world. We know Jesus has ultimate authority and praise God for that, but until the devil is fully done away with, he gives authority and power to kingdoms of this world, like some kind of puppeteer. Whether that name is Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or any of the other world empires from history or modern day, the truth is the same. These entities are under the influence of the dragon and they worship the dragon. And the devil wants people to worship the state, the beast. And man, it can be a compelling vision. It can sound like gospel truth. It can look like the lamb, but in reality is of the dragon. And it is a pathetic substitute of the real thing. And the second beast from the earth is speaking to all of us to put our faith in the state, in these human institutions. The unholy trinity is trying to capture the allegiance of the people of God. And nothing would make the devil happier than for us to have our primary allegiance be towards the state or to any of the other petty, insignificant things that capture our eyes. He wants to turn our eyes and our priorities to idols, to cheap imitations. So this raises the question, church, where is your allegiance? If you were to scroll through your social media of choice, what would it say your most important allegiance is? If you looked at how you spent your time and asked what you really get passionate about, are they the things of God or not? If people ask who you are, what are the first words that come after the words I am? Jesus makes very clear in his ministry, you cannot serve two masters. Your allegiance is either purely to Jesus or it is to an idol. For the rich young ruler, it meant that he needed to give up his worship and allegiance to his possessions to follow Jesus. Maybe for you it means giving up Netflix instead of binging for hours on end and saying you're too busy to help with anything. Maybe it means cutting out those hours for the sake of following God. Maybe it's social media or your smartphone that's getting in the way of your allegiance to Jesus. Maybe it's video games that eats up all of your time. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's Fox News or CNN or whatever your news station of choice is. In a way, these all can kind of be marks of the beast. Partaking in these things in moderation, and if you're trying to do it for the glory of God, is honoring to God, and that is good, but very quickly good things can become an idol. But whatever it is that is making us turn our eyes and our zeal and our, our passions and our time away from the gospel of Christ to these cheap imitations is ultimately worshiping the dragon. And it's not lost on me, this year is an election year. And it just makes uh, preachers' heart levels raise even a little bit higher. And I can guarantee you that there are going to be people standing in pulpits like this, in positions like mine, and are gonna be pointing people to the state instead of pointing them to Jesus where they should be. The moment we start losing the focus of Christ being the central point of our church, the moment the gospel is not the most important issue, 
and we start turning to these side issues, be it how church is done or the style of church or just any secondary issue, and secondary issues are important, but they're not the main thing. Whenever we do that, that is when churches start to die. I talked with a young Christian recently who went to a really big Christian conference, and he noticed that there was more cheering whenever people made fun of Joe Biden than there was cheering for Jesus. That is disgusting. And if you swapped Trump's name in there, I'd say the same thing. Whenever we are quickly turning to cheap imitations, it deadens the witness and the power of the church. And I'm gonna say something that might make y'all lose some respect for me. But I love you too much, and I love God too much to not say what is convicting my heart. And hey, Revelation's political, so there we go. The political right is right to an extent. Then they serve the dragon. The left is right to an extent. Then they serve the dragon. And your blood might boil a little bit that I just said that. You might be very frustrated. You might hate that I said that. But I'm honestly kind of concerned if you do hate that I said that. If we think that either side of the aisle is perfectly nailing kingdom values, we are deceiving ourselves. We're just not reading Jesus closely, right? If all of our energy and all of our effort is going to the state thinking that that is where the most meaningful change is gonna come. It's through policy or a certain political ideology or getting the right people in office. Like that's what's really gonna change the world. If we think that, we are gravely mistaken. Politics affects change to a certain extent. But they are just trying to treat symptoms of the human condition. The movement of slavery was abolished in this country and do you think that right after that, slave owners were like, yeah, that's, that's great, that's a great idea. No, there was a lot of hatred still there that needed to be changed because the problem was in the human heart. A policy didn't just magically change them. Only in Jesus is holistic healing found. Jesus, (laughs) thank you. Jesus' energies were not focused on trying to reform the Roman government because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom didn't fight with swords, but with self-sacrificial love. He wasn't saying, Peter, all right, here's the plan. We're gonna have Simon the Zealot take out a senator, and then we're gonna get you in office, and we're gonna raise you in the ranks, and that's how we're gonna change the world. No, that was not the model of Jesus. Jesus changed the world by loving and discipling the people who were right in front of him. And then he instructed his followers to go and do the same. While people in politics are fighting symptoms, If we are committed to the way of Jesus, if we are committing to loving and discipling the people that are right in front of us, sharing the gospel with them and teaching them how to walk in the way of Jesus, we would be helping people get to the core of their wounds and find true healing. And the world would also be changed a whole lot faster. (laughs) So this, whenever you really think about this, it kind of blows your mind. So if just one person made it a goal to disciple one person 
in the span of a year and then launches that person to go disciple somebody else and so on and so on and so on. If each person discipled one person per year, the whole world would know Jesus in 33 years. 33 years! I wouldn't even be retired at that point, I think. Like, now obviously, people are gonna reject the gospel. Obviously, people are gonna say no, right? It's not as easy as just doing that model and, and it works perfectly. But it goes to show you how much more power is in the model of Jesus than any policy or government change or whatever, right? Just to focus on the people in front of you as opposed to hitching our wagons to any other ideologies. Now, to be totally clear, I think it is great if we get good Christ-following people in office. Whenever I say Christ-following, I mean actually Christ-following, not just Christian in name. That's a little bit more like lamb speaks like a dragon. I am not against Christians in politics. I'm not against Christians in any area of the workforce because Christians need to be everywhere. <laughs> I am so grateful to live in a country where I have the religious freedom that I do. I have family members who are veterans. I cheer for the US and the Olympics. I also cheer a lot for the US men's soccer team. But our allegiance is to Jesus over everything. If for whatever reason Jesus told me to stop cheering for the US and the Olympics because it was a form of idolatry, I would, okay? I don't think he's saying that. But if he did, I would. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means all of my other loyalties need to be in alignment with Jesus. And I'm not saying that all loyalties are bad. For instance, I would say my loyalty to my wife is a good one. It's a good allegiance, but it also comes from the primary overflow of my allegiance to Jesus. I believe Jesus wants me to be a good husband. That is why I'm a good husband. But if something is not in line with the kingdom of God, I don't wanna flirt with it. Church, our hope is not in the state. Our hope is not in any human institutions. Our hope is not in any human devices. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. Not a kingdom of this world. It is in the kingdom of God and it is invading this world through us empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our hope is in theocracy, not democracy. And it pains me to see so many of my friends who don't have much hope for the future whatsoever because they don't have a good relationship with Jesus, that are terrified about what's gonna happen in this country and what's gonna happen to this earth and all that stuff. And that's like, here's the thing. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd be right there with you. I, I would be totally terrified about the state of our world. But that's not where my hope is. My hope is that the God of the universe took on flesh, became like us in every way, showed us what the joyful, flourishing life really looks like. He was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins, demonstrating the fullest extent of the love of God. And he was buried for three days and was raised to new life, conquering the power of sin, death, and the devil, and is now exalted and has authority over all the cosmos. And one day he will come back again and raise those in Christ from the dead and we will live with him in the new heaven and earth forevermore. That is my hope, church. And my prayer is that we as a church at Fourth Avenue do not compromise that truth. 
that we do not prioritize or centralize any other issue, that we never become a Jesus and church, but we are a Jesus only church. May we fix our eyes on Jesus and not fall for any of the cheap imitations. This morning, we're gonna conclude with a time of prayer and response because I think it's very fitting after a topic like today and also the placement of God working and moving through worship and, and something that he might be convicting you in this morning. One of the things I love so much about our church is the emphasis of prayer that we have to the point where we spend a dedicated time to pray together every single week. Because you can't read the Bible and not think prayer is powerful and effective. This morning, we're gonna make space for it here. And some of you might have a little bit of a hesitancy with a placement like this because it might sound a little bit too much like an altar call like you've been exposed to in the past where some person moves or comes down front and everyone's judging people. Can we just get past that stigma? Like, it's nonsense. Every single person in here has sin in their life. Every single person in here needs to repent. Every single person needs to respond to God's prompting and calling. Amen? Okay, stigma, dead. Now, um, this is a time for all of us to respond. This isn't just people who need prayers, although that's gonna be happening. So if uh, prayer team and shepherds, if you wanna go ahead and go around the room, we're gonna make time for that here. So if there is something that's going on in your life that you're asking for the Lord to bring deliverance in, or if there's something that you're wanting to celebrate, we're gonna have people who are dedicated and want to pray with you. And we believe something happens when those prayers happen. Also, if you wanna pray with people who are around you, this is a great opportunity for that. If you know someone's going through something in here today and they need encouragement and they need prayer, go move, go move and pray with them. And another thing that you can be praying for this morning is for uh, Tyne and Hannah Brewer. Their newborn baby, Nora, uh, is, has arrived and she is in Centennial Hospital and is currently aspirated. And she's having a hard time breathing on her own. And so it would be great if during this time, um, if you feel led to please in your hearts with each other to, to pray for them. It's a very scary situation. Um, and also this time can be used for self-reflection. And we're gonna have prayer prompts on the screen. This morning is a great time to answer the call of God on your life. Maybe from worship this morning or from the sermon, you feel a little bit of a stirring in your soul. And so often at the end of a sermon or a worship service, we can feel a lot of adrenaline and we feel on fire for God or something and we wanna go out and do awesome things, but that adrenaline wears off pretty quick. But what if we spent time every week at the end of a service just asking, asking God, what's one thing you want me to do from today? What's one takeaway? How would that change? How would that change your life? Maybe this morning it's asking God, where do I have misplaced allegiance? Where is my allegiance of something else getting in the way of my allegiance to you? And hey, we just started Lent. It's not too late to give something up for Jesus. But I want to encourage you, don't walk out of here without a plan. Don't walk out of here without asking God what he wants to do with you and what you've heard today. And after I pray, we're gonna have some dedicated time of prayer for talking to God, but also listening to God. However you feel led this morning, 
May we be a church that responds to the stirring of God, and may we have ears to hear the invitation of what God is inviting us into. Let's pray. Lord, we have so quickly turned eyes to idols. We have been seduced by cheap imitations. And Lord, I pray that you be with our church and the global church to have an unyielding allegiance to you and you alone. Lord, help us look inward in our hearts. If there's something about having a only Jesus dedication to our lives, if there's something that's resistant in there, help us to ask why. Where is this coming from? And Lord, I believe our church was made for a moment such as this. We were made to be a beacon of light to Franklin, Tennessee, right here, right now. Lord, give us eyes to see the people in front of us, to not fall for the headlines in the news, but to look at the headlines in people. Lord, give us an unyielding, uncompromising devotion and allegiance to you. And Spirit, help us whenever we are weak and we can't do it on our own. Give us the power to say no to our idols. Release them from us, Lord Jesus. May we be a church that is holy and pure and dedicated to you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.